millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Young Contemptuals podcast. And we are on location at the Staffordshire Regimental Museum, which is located uh, between Litchfield and Tamworth. And today I'm joined by Pete Neal, and we're going to have a tour of the museum. So where are we going to start, Pete? So we're going to start um, at the entrance, like any other museum, I think, <laughs> Steve. It sounds a very logical idea. So we are stood uh, at the entrance, just by the car park. Plenty of parking spaces if you want to come and visit. There's a few disabled uh, spaces for that matter as well. So outside the uh, museum, there is a number of, well, what's called gate guardians usually, isn't it? Uh, so what have we got here? We've got a, a, an Iraqi APC from the 90s, by the look of it. Um, yep. Do you know anything about that at all? No, I think mean, they're Russian, aren't they? Oh, I think, right. yeah, they're like a, a Russian monstrosity. So captured in the field of conflict uh, during the uh, First Gulf War. And then we've got, of course, the Universal, so the Bren gun carrier, the T-16 to be specific, which is undergoing restoration at the moment. Uh, and I've seen that come on over the past few years. And although it doesn't run, and I don't think I've got plans to have it running, They've restored it to protect, protect it for future generations, which is uh, you know, a great thing to see, conservation in action. What else have we got, Pete? What's this? Uh, we've also, right next door to it, is a ferret. I'm quite a fan of a ferret, to be fair. I've, I've ridden in ferrets in the past. They are pretty cool. I can almost imagine you uh, requisitioning a ferret and taking it down the shops. I can imagine you a bit <laughs> like Toad of Toad Hall going along in one. <laughs> Uh, we've got another couple at the back here as well. So what, what have we got here? Are these a bit more, mo- bit more modern, aren't they? Yeah, you've got um, an a, a, a APC, uh, which is a, oh, what they call them? Is it uh, M112, I think they're called? I think it is, yeah. yeah. And then uh, that looks like, that could be a scorpion. I think you're right. Let's go yeah. and take a look. So we're going to walk up towards the museum. So... They've got the main museum collection building, which is thankfully indoors because it's a very cold day today. Uh, but just before we go in there, we're going to do a, a tour of um, their sort of centrepiece of the museum, their USP, if you will, which is the uh, replica World War I trench system. Uh, so we're going to go and, we're going now and take a little look now. So this is it's a bit of a background. It's, it's called the Coltman uh, Trench. And it's called the Coltman Trench because of uh, Lance Corporal uh, William Coltman, uh, who actually had a v, has a VC... DCM and Military Medal. And the the uh, DCM and the Military Medal are both uh, with bars as well. And he's the most decorated soldier of the First World War and he didn't even carry a weapon. He was a stretcher bearer, which is absolutely insane. So the, the actual trench is uh, dedicated to, uh, to his, his memory. And he did survive the First World War as well. Very lucky. 
And also, later on in the tour, we will actually be seeing his medals as well, won't we, Stu? Indeed we will. They're actually lucky enough to have quite a number of medal groups in the museum. Uh, one of them being uh, William Coltman's uh, medal group, which is a very large medal group as well. Very unique as well. So we're going to go and enter the trench now. So we're just going to go through a little gate. So we've entered the trench system now. So we're now coming along the communication trenches. Um, so, this, so this is actually a lot wider, isn't it, Steve, than the usual... That, than, a, than what a First World War trench would have looked like. So this is, this is to get push chairs and uh, wheelchairs um, to have access to the trench system so everybody can experience it. Yeah, so it, it's been very much uh, put together in mind of being able to get you know, visitor numbers through. It's wider to get more people through, encourage trench tours and uh, obviously have access for all um, you know, sort of all, all those people who want to come and, uh, and take a look and experience the trench, really. But uh, you know, from an authenticity point of view, it's worth just. Um, I mean, it gives you a fantastic snapshot into what you know it would have been like. But you, you have to kind of have the caveat of the fact that uh, you know the trench would have been a lot narrower than this, and it would have been constructed slightly different. But you know, they've had to be realistic and say, well, we've built this trench system because it needs to stand the test of time. Uh, it's a visitor attraction. And this is a trench which we've visited many, many times over the years. I remember coming here as a, you know, a young child and uh, you know, thinking, wow, how amazing is this? And uh, in recent years, I've been coming as a living historian and populating the trench for tours and special events. And you know, it, is a, it is a really good trench. There isn't that many replica World War I trenches in the UK. And this is, this is one of the best. It's, it's a fantastic trench system. It's got a lot of, um, a lot of USPs to it as well. And, um, you know, quite rightfully, the museum have it as their kind of front centrepiece attraction of the museum. So let's go and take a look up here. What have we got here? We've got the aid post, haven't we, Pete? Yes, we have. So we're at like a T-junction now. So we could carry on straight and that will take us up to the front line. Or if we turn left, this will now take us to the regimental aid post and also a SAP as well. So we've just got to the regimental aid post so it's a there's a little dugout with a bed and medical equipment uh to sort of uh, recreate what a regimental aid, aid post would have actually looked like but also the good thing about this um trench system is that while you're walking around there's lots of information boards uh mm -hmm. talking about the different sections but we've also got a little button so you press the button and um you have an audio commentary to tell you what what's going on for that specific reconstruction so i'm going to just quickly press the button for this one for the regimental aid post just to give you a little sneak peek of what to expect when you come We're here standing by a replica of a regimental aid post known as an rap similar to those found in the british sector of the western front from 1914 to 1918 this would have formed part of what was known as the chain of evacuation so that's just a little snippet because it does go on um, for a few minutes. So we're uh, now moving up to the uh, SAP, aren't we, Steve? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're up in the, uh, the SAP at the moment and uh, they've got a little information board here about uh, poison gas and the use of poison gas during the First World War, which is um, very informative. And I've got a couple of interesting photos as well. So one of them depicts, uh, well, it's an actual photograph, I should say, of a gas attack on the Western Front. Um, and they've also got an interesting photo of the North Staffordshire um, Regiment, some of the bombers, wearing gas hoods as well, which is very interesting. So it kind of gives you that uh, flavour of um, what gas warfare was all about. Also with the SAP as well, they've got uh, a little sort of um, a little loophole 
where you can look out across no man's land as well so it's a um, very interesting little thing it's very popular with the kids as well because i love trying to trying to spot the enemy uh, tank as well in the distance but what we're going to do is going to move back up the sap and we're going to well sorry down the sap and back into the front line all right so we're back at the t-junction we're turning left and we're now making our way up to the uh, first firing step but we've also got a fun call as well haven't we steve Yes, we have indeed. This is one of the one of the things I do quite like about this trench system because you don't see these at many of the reconstructed trenches because they are fairly hard to, to replicate really um, to a degree. But these are great. And when we do events here, it's always nice to uh, put a bit of kit in there, have a go one or two guys sleeping in there and that sort of stuff. Um, but it's nice. So I've actually got, I think I've actually got uh, two or three of these fun coals, which is quite a good little touch um, to the trench system. But yeah, the fire firing step here. So this is, as we've mentioned before, a bit of a sanitised version of a trench system. So the firing step we've got here has been built with school visits in mind, which, you know, it's fair enough. You've got to give it some leeway in that sense. It's actually really good that they do it because when school visits come through here, they get the kids up on the firing step and they can just see over uh, the parapet and then they can see across no man's land and it really puts them in the sort of in the boots of, of the soldier at the time and gets them thinking, uh, along those sort of lines. So we make our way past the firing step and we, all, we now come to the King's Head. It's not a pub, it's the officer's dugout. Um, so let's, uh, let's have a, shall, we, shall we go inside, Steve? Why not? Let's, uh, let's see if we've got permission to enter. Okay, so we're now in the officer's dugout. We've got two bunk beds and lots of paraphernalia in here. Um, also, there's a television in here with some fasc fascinating photographs of the First World War, um, with a with a good backing track to it as well. Um, I don't know if you can pick it up on the microphone, but it's quite loud <laughs> today. <laughs> it's a uh, it, it's a great little dugout. This is, and it's brilliant when uh, we do events here and we have it populated with the officers' sort of paraphernalia on a the table. There's loads of things in here. So they've got um, the signal flares as well. They've got the semaphore uh, flags too. Um, so, and I've also got the uh, pigeons in a box, which aren't real pigeons, uh, just in case anyone from uh, animal welfare is listening. Um, they're not real pigeons; they're just uh, plastic prop pigeons. But the point is, they were actually um, paying attention to you know the, the signals and how important signals were uh, during the whole of the First World War. So it's uh, it's fantastic, uh, fantastic little uh, snapshot of a dugout. And it's definitely mm. worth a nose in here. And they have also got some naughty photos on the wall as well. But we'll let you find them when you come and visit. Absolutely, and also when we've um, done stuff here in the past, this tends to be the warmest place, oddly <laughs> yeah. as well. <laughs> it, does. it does indeed, and trust me, when you're doing like a Christmas truce uh, sort of um, you know uh, event here, you need to you need to get your, your hands warm and so forth. And we're we're here on a cold uh, December morning, and um, you know it's uh, even with modern kit on, it's still bloody cold. So um, let's escape the sanctuary of uh, of the dugout and let's go back into the trench. So coming out of the officer's dugout, we have now turned left and making our way to Hellfire Corner. And this is almost like a, like a proper like U-turn here. Um, also to show how the trenches were marked. That's obviously, it's not a straight line. It's in a zigzag form uh, to aid in uh, reducing casualties from shell blast. So we've just done, so we just come around that corner and we're now at the second uh, fire step now, which is more how a fire set should look, unlike the one we saw before, which is more uh, for school children, so they can actually get up and look over the top of the trench. So this is more of a better level to what it would have looked like. 
This is actually my favourite uh, part of the trench for uh, for two reasons mainly. So the first one being, we of course have the fire step, which is more appropriate. Because if I stand on the other fire step, uh, you basically see me from the waist up <laughs> when I'm on that one. But on this one, you you just see the top of my head, so it's much better. But secondly, we're actually standing under some um, some a covering at the moment, some uh, corrugated uh, steel, which means that if it does chuck it down and we're on an event, we can stand under here and get a little bit of a uh, sanctuary from the rain so as i say this is my favorite part of the trench we also have another funk hole as well so it's the second funk hole and we also have another uh please press the button um sort of uh, setup so you can press the button and get an idea shall we're I, not going to do shall that. i press the button no because we know this one goes on for a while Peter. <laughs> i've been told i'm not allowed to press the button but if you'd like to press the button come to the staff's museum and um it's a recreation of uh, blokes going over the top <laughs> So we've also got, moving around onto the fire step, we've got um, a, a sniper's loop as well, a little loophole. So this is a piece of uh, piece of metal with a little hole in, a shutter over it, and it's set into the fire step. And, uh, you know, if the sniper needed needed to put a round down or have a little nosy about, they can open that little loophole up and uh, do what they need to do. But it's a nice little touch that's set into the uh, trench. But looking through it now, it's uh, it's been blocked up by... Uh, detritus by the look of it which is a posh, posh word for rubbish so we're making our way from the second fire step got another foot funk hole as we go past i, I was just going to say that is actually my uh, my favorite photo oh. of the staffs is in there so it depicts the uh, the first six south staffords um at ypres in 1915 so that's one of the uh, territorial battalions and it's a um it's, a, it's an amazing photo because obviously at this point in the war 1915 you know, photography didn't really, well, it didn't exist on the front line officially, but it did unofficially. And this is a real intimate personal photo, a very rare photo of that as well, of um, of the staff, well, South Staffords in, in the front line trench. And it shows them, um, it's fantastic because it shows uh, a few guys wearing SD caps, one um, unusually, rather unusually wearing it with his chin strap actually deployed, which you don't really see that often. Um most of the guys have got no cap badges. I think there's only one, maybe two guys have got cap badges. But most interestingly, the guy who's in the middle, he's wearing, um, I think it's a gore blimey that's been pulled forward and fashioned into a flat cap. Or it could just be an actual flat cap, which is interesting because these guys would have come from, more than likely, the um, around Stokes, the potteries. Um, so it's, it's quite an interesting little snapshot into the human element of the, the guys behind these photos. Absolutely, it's, it's it's one of those photographs that um, makes you think a bit sometimes, doesn't it? With that quirkiness of the British Army, I can hear the cogs grinding in your mind, Peter. <laughs> Let's move on swiftly to so your favourite part of the trench. So this is over to you. <laughs> yes, this is my favourite part of the trench because what they've actually done here, they've actually um, acknowledged. I think for the is the right word to use is the um, underground war. So what they've done is they've actually created sort of a section of tunnel. So those that aren't too familiar with the underground war, what, what we had, we had things called tun tunneling companies. Um, and what they would do, they would dig underneath the German line and blow sections of them up. In a, sim in a simple terms, I think we could do a whole episode for an hour <laughs> on, um, on, on the underground war, but, the, uh, but that is the simple version of it. So yeah, it's a really interesting tunnel. This is, and it's um, again, it's another a unique selling point for for the museum because you don't see this anywhere in the UK that I'm aware of at the moment, this moment in time. And uh, you know, the, the mining war, the underground war, played a huge role, um, you know, in the Western Front from you know 1915 onwards. It was uh, the kind of um, 
hark back to medieval warfare at the, the, this stage and you know some of the explosions you, you can still see where they've you know blown these huge craters you can still see them on the western front uh, landscape today so it's a huge part of uh, of the of the great war and uh, it's nice to see it remembered at the museum yeah absolutely and like you said steve the, the mark of the of this tunneling war is still there um they certainly with some of these mines changed the geography of the landscape one thing I'm, I'm going to say before we move on from this, what it does give the punter when they come and um, visit is the dark, like the, sort of that they give that kind of darkness to it, that ambience of being underground as well. Because it's very low lit down there, so if you don't like the dark, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't suggest it. But if you want to try and get that feel of like that underground, that sort of claustrophobicness of going into one of these tunnels, I think they actually present that quite well. So we've just uh, exited the uh, re replica trench system, and what we're going to do now is we're going to enter the museum itself, and we're going to talk about, we're going to cherry pick some of the items that are on display in the museum, because if we if we talked about near enough every item, the episode would be you know probably six, seven hours long, and um, we're just going to cherry pick a few of the items inside the museum, talk about them, and give you a flavour of what the museum has to offer. So um, hopefully you guys can come down and support um, you know, my local regimental museum, but also a fantastic uh, regimental museum at that as well. So let's go inside, Pete, and let's have a nose. Let's go. Right, so we are now in the first part of the museum, and what's caught our eye as soon as we walk around the corner with these uh, two fantastic King's Colours. Isn't that right, Steve? It is. It's amazing to think that these have been flourished over, um, you know, by, by the ensigns in uh, the Napoleonic Wars. So these dates mm. um, from around 1808 to 1809. So these would most likely have seen uh, some form of action in the peninsula as well, which is amazing to think. Um, but they're in fantastic condition and they're definitely being mm. well preserved in comparison to uh, other colours. So if you go to nearby Litchfield Cathedral, there's many uh, colours that are actually on display in the cathedral there. And um, they haven't been anywhere near as well preserved as these. So these really have been protected for future generations, which is, uh, which is great to see. And that's what museums are all about. So we're starting here in the Americas from 1705 to 1807. Um, I think there's the two items that really stand out here are the uh, mitre, because that is beautifully preserved, isn't it? Yeah, a uh, stonking bit of kit. I mean, that, that is completely, obviously, sewn by hand for the period. It's a Grenadier's mitre. They wore different caps to the centre companies at the time. The light companies did adopt a similar cap to it um, over the over the years. Um, but the actual Grenadier's cap, the reason why it was designed like that to be tall rather than the typical sort of tricorn, if your mind's eye can imagine it, is these guys actually originally would have thrown grenades. And if they were throwing a grenade wearing a tricorn, they'd knock the cap off. Um, while they were doing so, so that's why they ended up having the uh, the Grenadiers mitre. But the the condition of it is is absolutely exceptional, and it's it's a very rare item. And very lucky to see it on display, to be fair. But I'm sure the other item that's caught your eye is the Jaeger rifle, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah I thought as much. <laughs> yeah, the um, yeah the Jaeger rifle is quite nice, isn't it? The we were um, quite lucky. Oh got to be about five years five, no longer than that now probably isn't it when we went to the rgj museum and we actually managed to get a private viewing of a uh jaeger rifle but yeah the um yeah really nice it does uh it always catches my because they were beautifully made because i've 
but from us holding one, we could feel how well balanced it was. And even, well, I've done a lot of shooting in my time. I could easily fire that all day long. Um, it just felt so well balanced um, and made as well. Because that, that, that was craft, that's craftsmanship there as well. That's not something that's been mass produced. That's something that's been crafted. Yeah, the Jaeger rifles are, are an amazing bit of kit, and anyone who knows the sort of salt worth the salt in terms of um, historical firearms will see the similarities between this and the the infantry uh, rifle, the eighteen hundred rifle, um, more modernly known as the the Baker rifle made by Ezekiel Baker. Um, he pretty much copied the Jaeger mm. rifle bit to bit, even down to um, you know the sword bayonet fitting and the um, and the, uh, the the length, caliber, and so forth. But you know th- this. Baker rifle obviously comes into to use in the British Army, 1800. But this is this has been used by Germans, you know, 30, 40 years prior, um, over in the Americas. So um, yeah, definitely a feature for a future podcast episode. In fact, there's a couple of other items we'll quickly talk about here. Um, so we've got the uh, the lo- couple of belt plates, the shoulder belt plates. Here. So we've got the uh, Loyal Staffordshire Volunteers, uh, but we've also got uh, which is very rare. A shoulder belt for uh, the loyal Litchfield volunteers as well, uh, which was actually dug up in Litchfield in 1983. It's two very rare items. And before we move forward through the um, sort of uh, regimental history, it's this point um, in the Americas between 1705 and 1807 where the, the Holland Patch uh, came in, came into being. So longest uh, post in, in British military history over in the West Indies. Um, the, the clothes of the guys were in. Absolute state. They weren't getting their uh, yearly clothing issue at this point, so they had to patch up their uniforms with um, what's became known as the uh, Holland patch. It's sacking cloth uh, that their supplies um, arrived in, and they used that cloth to uh, sort of uh, patch up their their clothing. And from that, as um, you know, sort of moving forward, they put a little piece of the Holland patch behind the uh, South Staffordshire uh, cap badge. Uh, so if you ever see photos of the, of the South Staffordshire Regiment. You see the cat badge with a piece of little cloth behind it. That's where it comes from. So we're going to move forward now, um, start moving into the, uh, the Napoleonic Wars. So we're talking between 1793 and um, at the far end, the Crimean War, 1856. So we're, on the, we're, in that, we're looking at that cabinet at the moment. And then one of the first items that's caught my eye um, is a pair of, um, pair of epaulets, so officers' epaulets, that are um, in really, really nice condition. And they date uh, from between... Uh, well, about 1815, it, it's noted in the in the case. But they are in exceptional condition, and you can really see the gold uh, bullion uh, wiring is in really, really good condition. I know for a fact how much work goes into making them, having had a stab at them in the past. And um, they are a really nice bit of kit. But the other item that's caught my eye in particular is a brass officer's gorget. You don't really see them very often, but uh, they're, a, they're a badge of rank. So going back to the English Civil War, a gorget was typically worn by... Um, sergeants and officers um, as, as a badge of rank. Um, really useful bit of kit as well. Uh, but moving forward um, in, into the sort of late uh, 18th century, early 19th century, gorgets were being worn by officers. They weren't a, a practical item at that point. They were there for show. They were a badge of rank in that sense. Um, so they've actually got a brass uh, gorget here, which dates between 1800 and 1830. And... Um, Really, really nice condition. But what's caught your your eye, Pete? So what's caught my eye is this original regimental cap from the Waterloo period. Um, I think it's an officer's one. It's got to be an officer's one because of the ornateness of the uh, cap plate, I think, because that's very intricately engraved, isn't it? 
Yeah, and the, the cords as well. I mean, the cords may not be original to it, we don't know, but the fact that they've got the um, gold bullion tassel and they're a little... You can see the colours are faded, yeah, but you've got red. flecks of gold, can't you? Yeah, and you can see the red intertwined into it as well. So that would tell me, um, you know, based on that, that it's more than likely a, uh, a office, an officer's cap. So we've... Uh sort of bypassed a couple of cabinets because we don't want to give too much away of this uh, about this treasure trove. We, we really want you to see this for yourselves. So we've um, now stopped off at the uh, Africa um, cabinet for 1882 to 1902. And um, again, there's two items in here that have really um, drawn themselves to us, haven't they, Steve? Yeah, so the one item that's caught my eye, so I'm quite a fan of uh, historical tins and, and rations, as many of you will know. So, in fact, there's two items here. So, there's a, a ration tin, uh, which would have contained cocoa at one end and dinner at the other. So, that's South African War era. But also, we've got the Queen Victoria gift box as well, uh, which was given to soldiers serving in South Africa. So, it's kind of a bit of a prelude to the Princess Mary tin. That's where Princess Mary drew her inspiration from, I'm sure. But uh, it's a very good condition box. Um, maybe it's maybe it's still got the contents in as well. Yeah. So I've, my my item that's drawn my eye is this um, officer's piff hat, which is in quite good condition considering it's over well over a hundred years old now. Um, it's from the South Staffordshire Regiment. Um, it's got all of its coverings on and the regimental flash on the side, and it's in quite good condition. I hope I look that good in 150 years' time. <laughs> <laughs> We'll never know, we'll never know. So one of the cabinets we're just quickly going to touch upon, they've got a, a cabinet dedicated solely to the volunteer uh, corps and, and, and um, re regiments throughout the history of the Staffordshire regiments. And um, a few years ago, I was lucky enough to come along and take a look at what's number, number 19 in this cabinet, which is a leak volunteer's uh, jacket dating to the uh, Napoleonic Wars. Lovely item, and I was lucky enough to have it out and you know, almost take it, to, uh, take it to bones in a way. A fantastic item. It's very rare to see and find um, jackets specifically for the volunteers, uh, other ranks, in this condition. Uh, so it's a bit of a unique uh, item in, in that sense. But the other item always catches my eye in this cabinet is um, number, number 25, and it's an infantry volunteer's tailcoat. Now, it's, a, it's unusually, rather than it being a typically uh, red uh, coat or jacket worn by British soldiers, this is a, a blue tailcoat. So this dates, in my opinion, to the very late 1790s. And you will see the Birmingham volunteers, as they were, wearing a coat very, very similar to this. So I have a feeling that it might well be for um, the Birmingham volunteers, because even at this point in the late 1790s, the, um, the British Army was, was going to, to jackets rather than coats, so high-waisted jackets with short tails. Um, this actually is more of a hark back to the American Revolutionary Wars, in the fact that the soldier's wearing a waistcoat underneath and then he's wearing a tailcoat over the top. So it's quite unique in that sense. And as previously mentioned, you don't really find that many items for uh, the volunteers uh, surviving in as good condition as these are. So it's definitely worth coming just to see that alone. So we're now moving to the medal display. So I think what we mentioned earlier about uh, Lance Corporal Coltman, is uh, is that we, we talk about his little medal group because that is quite a uh, quite a rack he made, he collected for himself, isn't it? Yeah, just a bit. So th there's a lot of medals in this group, and I I wouldn't be able to tell you them all, but the one that stands out the most, of course, is a Victoria Cross that he won. Uh, he's also got the um, the military medal with Bar, 
And he's also got a DCM uh, with Bar as well, which is pretty uh, pretty serious gallantry awards, uh, bravery awards uh, that he won during the First World War. But more, in, well, not more interestingly, but you know, moreover, I should say, is the fact that he's also got some other medals there from the Second World War because he was lucky enough to survive the First World War, and uh, he was a, an Army Cadet Force uh, instructor during the Second World War. Um, and he, he's got a defence medal there. And the medal on the far right, I'm, I'm fairly convinced, to my eye, and my knowledge, that's a special special constabulary medal. I could be wrong. Mm, it could well be, couldn't it? He's also got a mention in dispatches during the First World War as well, because he's got the uh, leaf on his victory medal. Mm. So he really, uh, he, he definitely went above and beyond in many, in many instances. It's crazy, and just reading it, you know, just a couple of the acts of bravery. It says here on the 17th of February 1917, he rescued an officer who was lying wounded in no man's land uh, under enemy fire, for which he was awarded the military medal. Uh, for similar acts of bravery, he subsequently earned a bar to that military medal and the DCM and bar. And um, October 1918, just before the war finished, during the final assault on the Hindenburg Line, and in the face of a German counterattack, he three times went out into the open to give first aid to wounded men and carry them back to safety. And it was for that act that he w- was awarded the Victoria Cross. That is pretty, um, pretty amazing. Mm. Um, one amazing person. But we do have other medal groups here as well. So uh, the South Staffordshire Regiment were the only regiment uh, present at Arnhem to um, actually be awarded two Victoria Crosses. So there's two, two Victoria Crosses we'll uh, quickly talk about. Um, Pete, do you want to tell us about Major Kane and his link to someone rather famous? Yes, yeah, so uh, Major Kane, he um, he won obviously the Victoria Cross during the Battle of Armament for uh, numerous actions. It weren't just a one action um, that earned him it. He he did multiple things during the uh, days that he was there. Um, after the war, he never really spoke about it, and it weren't until he actually died that they knew he won a Victoria Cross. So. Um, so that sort of shows the sort of man he was, really. I suppose he, you know, got this award and he just put it in a box and forgot about it. You know, just pushed out. But the famous connection he's also got is that he was um, Jeremy Clarkson's father-in-law. So the uh, other Victoria Cross that was awarded to uh, a member of the South Staffordshire Regiment at Arnhem was uh, Lance Sergeant uh, Baskerfield. Uh, he was well, he was fatally wounded um, at Arnhem, but he. Um, he had a six-pounder anti-tank gun and he manned it or severely wounded and he took out a number of pieces of uh, German armour before succumbing to his wounds. So um, posthumously, he was awarded the, um, the Victoria Cross for that action and his body was um, sadly never recovered but his, uh, his heroic actions have definitely been, been remembered and his medal group is on display here. So, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty amazing group as well. He's obviously got an Italy star there as well. So we definitely got about it a bit. Oh, he definitely did. Because um, I've uh, visited Arnhem several times and I've been to Baskerfield's position and the the road at the T-junction where he was is pretty unchanged. So you can see the line of fire they had with his six-pounder. But yeah, very sad that they uh, never recovered him. So we're now coming up to the trench warfare. So this is the First World War cabinet. Well, there's a couple of cabinets, doesn't it? It's the... Uh, First World War, so uh, for 14 to 18. And there's a, it's sort of a jam-packed full of bits and pieces, isn't it? 
It really is. I've been here a number of times and I've just, just seen a couple of things that have caught my eye that I've actually not seen before, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's a fantastic little, um, little display that they've got here. So you've got a, an anti-tank rifle here, um, massive bit of kit, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um, but you've got things like the grenade vest as well. Um, loads of wire cutters, screw pickets. It, it, it's the amount of items that are in here, we, we would be here for a long time talking about what's in here. But let's cherry pick a couple of items. So we've got a nice set of mess tins there. That's caught my eye. Ramsey Green would be very, very keen on seeing them, I'm sure. <laughs> so we've also got uh, an original uh, hypo hood here as well. So uh, smoke hood. And it says that this was taken into use shortly after the first German gas attack in April 1915. This one was, it, it was used by Private Benjamin Binns of the Six North Staffords. Um, definitely looks like it's been through a war. It's, you know, in good condition overall, mm. but um, blimey. And just to the right of that, we've got uh, an SBR as well, which, which definitely is a, a, an original. Mm. Uh, you can see that. Oh, yeah, you can see that in the uh, tarnishing on it. Mm. Really, really nice bit of kit. You've got things like trench periscopes as well, and um, you've got a nice uh, leather leather jerkin as well on display, and also a rangefinder as well. Mm. So there's a, there's a, this is really, really jam-packed full of bits and bobs, but there is another cabinet on the First World War too. Uh, so let, let us know what, what catches your eye here, Pete. So we've got a few bits and pieces in here that's... Um... They look like just what bit things that blokes have bought back, really, isn't it? Um, some like stuff like the, the steel helm, the pickle helm, as well. So these are like I think these are more trinket things that blokes have uh, picked up. I think over there across their travels while they're over there. Yeah, you can see a nice um, Princess Mary tin, still with its contents in situ as well. Cigarettes and tobacco in there, and worth a fair, fair few bob now. Uh, we got a few captured items as well. So you got a German officer's uh, Saxon. Uh, sword here as well, lovely Lewis gun, and a few uh, pieces of um, of trench art as well, where helmets have been painted and uh, shell cases and so forth, and uh, a fairly battered bugle as well. Mm. Uh, so there's a North Staffordshire Regiment bugle, which um, that bugle sounded the advance um, from a trench at Ypres, uh, Ypres on uh, July 1917. So, be interesting to hear that mm. played again, wouldn't it? Well, it would, yeah. Okay, so we've just come across to the first of, I think it's three or even four uh, mm. World War II cabinets. So um, the items that have caught my eye straight away um, are, the, are the ration items. So we've got some original tins of compo ration here. So we've got a tea, tea tin, uh, we've got a, a sugar tin, also an emergency ration tin that hasn't been opened. You can still make it, it's gold uh, weatherproof coat. We've also got, is that a can of oxtail, is it? Or uh, oh, what? Yes, it is, the one with the candle yeah. in the middle. Yeah, so that's yep. this, a self-eating can of oxtail soup that's actually been used because you can see um, it's, it's had two holes punctured in the top, uh, which is obviously part of the uh, instructions for when you um, light the wick and it warms the soup up. But fantastic invention. Surprised mm. that never really caught on, but I suppose it's a fairly expensive uh, item to make, but very, very practical uh, for use in, uh, in wartime, absolutely. So moving on in the cabinet, we've got a quite rare bit of uh, um, kit which is a Mark I Sten, which you don't see very often at all. Um, even in period photographs, they don't appear that often. Um, I think the only time, apart from, like, say, trial photos, I think them actually being used would be by the um, auxiliaries that were created. Indeed, and another item in here is a 20-round mag magazine for the SMLA um, rifle. 
So that's, again, a fairly rare uh, item. Um, they, they said that perhaps 120,000 were issued at the end of the First World War, but they are a massive, uh, well, a great rarity. So it's fairly, I mean, that's the only one I've ever seen. So there can't be that many of them about. So we've just come across to the, um, to the second of four uh, cabinets on World War II. A couple of the items that have caught my eye, uh, we've got a Mark III Sten, we've got a Thompson, uh, we've also got a cap comforter as well. I love that fantastic uh, util utilitarian piece of kit that is. And we've also got some, uh, some K rations as well, uh, which haven't actually been opened. We've got some of the tins of uh, corn pork loaf and some of the uh, breakfast boxes as well, which is really, really cool uh, to see. You don't see them too often. So we're coming over to one of the last cabinets, World War II, and what this one's doing is giving, um, with mannequin examples, an overview of where the, uh, the Staffordshire regiments were uh, fighting. So we've got a bloke dressed up for the Far East. We've also got a soldier in Normandy, by the looks of it, as well. And we've also got an uh, airborne soldier as well, so a bloke who was a member of the uh, Air Landing who would have fought in Arnhem, also, also in Sicily in Italy as well. So talking about the airborne soldiers, we've got a cabinet uh, dedicated. So the 2nd Battalion of the South Staffordshire Regiment were, um, they were glider-borne uh, infantry support, part of the air landing regiments. And here we've got some fantastic items. So we've got um, a Denison smock, which was worn by um, Major Kane VC at Arnhem. We've also got his, his beret as well. And uh, we've got some of the insignia that he wore on his battle dress uh, as well. So there's quite a few items of cane here. But then we've got a couple of German items, haven't we, Pete? We have indeed, yes. We've got uh, a Falschenjäger helmet, uh, MP40 as well, and a STG44 or an MP44. Depends what, depends what book you're reading. <laughs> <laughs> we also have the, the, an original um, Piat as well, so the projector infantry anti-tank. Uh, which was used um, during Arnhem, so a, a very, very heavy bit of kit, take my word for it. Um, but that's nice to see, because obviously the Piat played, played a huge role in, um, at Arnhem. One thing that's actually drawn me the most in this cabinet is actually one of the photographs on the, on the board. Um, so the photograph is uh, a jeep and trailer with uh, broken up horses in uh, Arnhem. They've just obviously not long landed and uh, they're just getting all the gear together. Now, if you go to the Hartenstein Museum in Arnhem, they have an Arnhem experience. Now, downstairs, this photograph is being used as like a backdrop. Um, and I, when I was there, oh, I can't even think off the top of my head now, it was a good 10 years ago now. Um, so we, I was stood there looking, uh, you know, looking at the display, and... Um, this uh, veteran walked up to me, said, oh, can you take my picture for me, please? I went, yeah, that's not a problem, mate, no problem. Um, took his photograph. He goes, have you got that picture in the background? I said, yes, I have. Um, he goes, are you sure you got it in the background? I said, I'm pretty sure I have because <laughs> you're stood in the middle of it. He goes, good. Do you know why that picture is important? I went, no, why is it important? He goes, because you see uh, that bloke stood in the middle almost looking to the camera with a helmet on. I went, yep, he goes, that's me. That's mad. <laughs> it, was a bit, it was a bit one of those mad moments. <laughs> wow. Right, let's go and have a look uh, at some of the displays outside because the displays don't finish in here. And just as we, before we leave, 
Uh, one of the real unique items they've got here is uh, a colour of the Loyal Pottery Infantry. So this is one of the um, sort of militia um, or volunteer infantry, I should say, that was raised uh, you know, during the sort of emergency of around 1800. So the feared and anticipated invasion of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte and the French. M many numerous militias and volunteers were raised. And this is one of their original colours, which, like the colours we talked about at the start of our entrance to the museum, is again in absolutely tremendous condition. It's a real work of art as well. Mm. And it must be pre-1801 because um, it's not got the Irish Psalter on it either. So we've now moved out of the museum now and uh, come to the second half of the outside exhibits, haven't we, Steve? Yes, so we, the, you know, as I said, the museum isn't just about what's inside. There's a lot of attractions outside the museum, so I've definitely made use of the, uh, the grounds around the museum. So one of the items we've got is I've actually got a, a reproduced, uh, well, replica um, um, air raid shelter from the Second World War. So this is the infamous jam sandwich shelter. So it's a brick construction with a huge slab of concrete on the roof. And they were called jam sandwich shelters because if a bomb went off nearby and it didn't suffer from a direct hit, it would typically blow the, the brick walls out and then the huge slab of concrete on the top will come slamming down on the occupants inside. So we'll go in and we'll take a look. And as you just gathered, there is a button in here and Steve just pressed it. <laughs> All about giving you guys the full enhanced service <laughs> on the podcast. So the air raid warning sirens have gone off and everyone will make their way to the shelter. So we've just come inside the shelter. It's probably only about, about 12 foot by 12 foot square. Uh, it's not that big. But now you can... That's proper like base isn't it under the ground as oh well, yeah you, you can feel you can feel it rumbling under the floor the vibrations coming through your feet Yeah, it definitely gives you a it definitely gives you a feel to what to what an air raid would have. Very loud. <laughs> um, yeah, it definitely gives you that feel of what it could have sounded like sat sat here in one of these air raid shelters.
Yes, that that does give you a real sense to what the civilian population was going through during during the Blitz, and stand standing in there gives me a real feel of what my nan went through and my granddad. They, but they they both uh, grew up during the London Blitz. They did, and for me nan, it was an absolute battle to try and get her to talk about the Blitz. And after being in that simulator. I can kind of relate now to why she never really spoke about the Blitz now after hearing what's just come through on those speakers. Yeah, well, we've just had the all clear sounded, so we could definitely move off. But uh, yeah, you know, there's, I think every family would have their, their stories to tell. And two stories that spring to my mind. There's one of my um, my nan said, who you know only died a, you know, a few years ago, but she said she remembered seeing the glow of Coventry when it was set alight. Uh, by the Luftwaffe uh, when she, she lived in Birmingham. She said she saw it in the night sky and it was horrific. But my um, my other grandma, um, she lived in uh, in Aston in Birmingham. And um, just it's it my dad's uh, brother, so my, my uncle, who's sadly no longer with us, he was um, a, a toddler and he was lying in bed one night and they lived opposite a gasworks in Aston. And uh, the Luftwaffe would come over and bomb all the time. Uh, they'd pretty much have no joy. And the house was never hit or suffered a direct hit or anything from uh, a bomb, but it was actually a lightning strike took the roof off their house during the war, which was, um, yeah, you, you have to smile and laugh a little bit in a way, but uh, yeah. So the next display that we, we come to is um, rather special. So anyone who knows me well knows that I'm a real lover of World War II defences, uh, British defences for that matter. You're not, are you? <laughs> I am. So what they've got here is they've actually got an original pillbox. So this is um, a variant pillbox. It's not actually a specific type. So it's fairly rare in that sense. And it, it was it's originally been it's been moved from its original position um, on Western Command Stop Line Number Five, which stretches from Tamworth all the way up to via Ashbourne to to Walton um, where Walton Towers is. And this pillbox uh, was saved about ten years ago, and it was brought from its uh, position, which was. Uh, alongside adjacent to a railway and the uh, the pillbox was originally disguised as a trackside shed but it had to be removed because they widened the main line and this pillbox was right on the side of the uh, railway so they had to move it so it was relocated from its position and it was saved and brought to Staffordshire Regimental Museum and it's been um, given a fresh lick of, of paint it wouldn't have looked like this during the war it had been um, clad with, with wood and disguised but uh, nonetheless, it, at least it's been saved, and it's a great, um, great pillbox to have a look round inside. But just adjacent to that, they've got a little slit trench um, that's been dug, which the Home Guard would have manned. And then you've got some um, some barrels, uh, which would which represent what's called a flame uh, fugas, which was one of the improvised defence weapons of the of the Second World War. So we'll have a quick look inside the pillbox while we're here, Pete. Yeah, also the uh, trench, but that'd been quite a common sight on the uh in france just before the uh dunkirk campaign also that food gas as well that would actually be used on the vietnam war as well by the americans they used to put them outside their camps and uh got used not once once mm. in a few once once in a while so the, the pillbox is um it's got a bit of water in there there is a bit of a hole in the pillbox unfortunately from where it was damaged when it was moved 
Um, but in here, you've got quite a lot of items. So some of the items that would have been in uh, a pillbox during the Second World War, so like ammunition crates, uh, boxes, field telephones, stretchers, uh, mess tins, and some of the personal items in there as well. Um, very cramped and tight inside there. I wouldn't be too much of a fan of going in with webbing on, but uh, definitely worth a little nose around because it's very, very rare that you get to go inside an original World War II pillbox and you get to uh, wonder around what it, what it would have looked like during the war. So moving on from the pillbox, <laughs> this is quite nice actually. I, this is something I do quite like out of here. So we're now coming up to Camp Fisher. Now, uh, so this is actually the children's play area, um, which has been dedicated to um, WO2 Ian Fisher from the Mercian Regiment. And, uh, and he was killed while on active duty. So this play area has been dedicated to him. So it's surrounded by something called HESCO, which is an excellent engineering feat. Um, so it's like a cage. So it's a cage that's been lined and they come flat pack. You open them up and you throw sand soil in there and you can actually build walls out of it. Um, but what's quite nice, because he, um, he was on warriors. So he was on warrior anti... Uh, warrior fighting vehicles and what they've done is is that the centerpiece of the play area is a, is a um interpretation of a warrior so uh so it's got slides coming off it fireman pole all the good stuff you need in a good climbing frame but what makes it even better it's a tank <laughs> yeah kids love playing on this when we've been to museum for open days uh, it definitely draws the families in so i think it's worth saying that there's plenty to see at this museum there is something for everyone whether you're uh, whether you've got young kids who aren't interested in history per se, they can come and enjoy the play area. If you're a big fan of military history, then there's loads in this museum to come and see for all periods, of, of, you know, for people who are interested in history. Uh, it's a cracking day out, reasonably priced, uh, fairly well accessed in the centre of the country. And uh, I'd implore you to come and visit. And if you can't visit this particular museum, then go and visit your local regimental museum and support them. Because now more than ever, those museums need your support. So uh, go along and have a, have a day out and buy something from the gift shop. But to round off the uh, podcast episode uh, on a, a sort of sobering note, shall we say, we are at what's called the Garden of Remembrance at the museum. So this is um, a, um, a, a Garden of Remembrance to remember those who've uh, paid the ultimate price while serving with uh, the Staffordshire Regiment. So that's the South Staffordshire Regiment, North Staffordshire Regiment, um, but also more uh, recently, the Mercian Regiment, and um, it's a very nice um, way of remembering those people who've paid the ultimate price. Very sobering thought, and you can see from the number of um, poppy crosses and reefs that have been put here that those people, quite rightly, are never forgotten. <laughs>